Good evening. When Amanda and I first moved into our home back in 2014, we were extremely excited. We'd been looking for a house since just about the moment we got married. And for two years, the search yielded very little results. Our very kind and patient realtor, Terry Mitchell, would meet us after church and drive us around to various properties that we would look at and examine, but we were never able to find anything that overcame the issues of price and or the need uh, to travel to a drugstore to obtain pharmaceuticals. About the time our first child was born, we realized very quickly we were going to need to find a house. The condominium we were renting was soon no longer going to be available to us. And so the need became very pressing. Well, one afternoon when I came home from work, Amanda had let me know that she had gotten an email notification from one of those house hunting websites. And we scheduled a tour that afternoon. And stepping into the house, we realized very quickly we wanted to move on this property. Now, the house itself was in excellent condition. It was very livable. But there were obviously some things that you come in and you see that, you know what, I'd change this color and that and all that. And obviously, uh, as the more design-oriented person, Amanda had a list. One of the items that she had focused on uh, was actually an item I came in and thought was absolutely fantastic. Our house came with maroon carpet. I very much enjoy the color maroon. I was very excited. It is the color of my alma mater, Clearwater Christian College. I, I, I love that color. Amanda thought I was insane. She had some very strong feelings about it, and she was very excited when we were able to remove it from the communal areas of the home. It's still in the bedrooms, and I, that's fantastic to me. But I do know its days are numbered. But over the years, we have been going in a sort of joking back and forth about removing the carpet. I would say, absolutely not. And she would say, yes, we are. And I would say, no, we're not. And this would go on and on, and she would question my sanity. You see, Amanda had some strong feelings about that carpet as did I. I loved it. She thought carpet should not be made in this color. Now, the issue we were bantering over was really more of a matter of personal preference. We all have preferences. I'm a Tampa Bay Buccaneer fan, but I know that other people think differently. They're wrong, but they think differently. Okay? And until the state legislature takes up my bill on fandom in the state, uh, they have the freedom to be uh, wrong. Now, there's nothing wrong with me liking the color of my carpet. The issue would be if I treated Amanda differently if she, because she didn't like it. See, personal preference is acceptable in matters of colors of carpet, toothpaste brands, and football teams. However, developing personal preferences, especially around that motivate our actions, that are focused on things like ethnicity, skin color, one of the only two genders there are. Socioeconomics. Those things are strictly forbidden. Society has a term for that. It's called discrimination. And the Bible is very clear on this matter. Now, certain groups in society try and push their ideas of what discrimination is. Others try and force legislation to align societal viewpoints on what counts and doesn't count as discrimination. And very recently, a couple of days ago, the Supreme Court handed down a ruling on this matter. But in recent years, this seems to be something that is gaining steam in our society. And not, we're not shying away from it. The ideas of personal preference and favoritism, especially with regard to how people are treated, is a hot-button issue in society. Now, let me be clear. Showing favoritism, discriminating against someone, or showing partiality against someone's Again, one of the only two genders there are, an ethnicity, or the money someone has is strictly outside the bounds of what is appropriate. Okay, that counts for society and for the church as well. The topic of being partial is actually a matter God takes seriously, especially in His church. Of all the attributes very rarely spoken about about God, where 
we're, uh, we're very quick to talk about his omniscience and his omnipotence and all of those, and as right we should. But of the list of attributes of God we, that are not discussed very much, his impartiality is very high up on there. You see, God is a God of impartiality. He is absolutely impartial. One commentator noted that God is absolutely impartial in dealing with people. And in that way, as with his other attributes, he is unlike us. Human beings, even Christians, are not naturally inclined to be impartial. We tend to put people in pigeonholes, in predetermined, stratified categories, ranking them by their looks, their clothes, their race or ethnicity, their social status, their personality, their intelligence, their wealth and power, by the kind of car they drive, by the type of house and neighborhood they live in. But this is different from how God deals with people. Our God is a God who shows no preference in these dealings. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 10, 17, For Yahweh your God is a God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the fearsome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. And God expects people to reflect that from Him. Deuteronomy 1, 17, You shall show no partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. Time and time again, Scripture reminds us that we should never be partial in dealing with people. Second Chronicles 19.7, we see King Jehoshaphat admonishing the judges, saying, So now let the dread of Yahweh be upon you, and be careful what you do, because with Yahweh our God there is no unrighteousness or partiality in taking of a bribe. Proverbs 24, 23 says, These also are the sayings of the wise. To show partiality in judgment is not good. Paul in Romans 2, 9 through 11 tells us, There will be no affliction or turmoil for every soul of man who works out evil, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who works good, to the Jew first and to also the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. We see from these verses that God takes the issue of favoritism and being impartial very seriously. We should treat all people, regardless of who they are, with the same level of base respect. At the core, all of humanity is the same. Now, there are attempts throughout human history, including today, to try and divide people into different groups and assign value to those groups. However, Scripture teaches that all of humanity is the same. We are all created as image bearers of God. This is because we were created to be like Him. Hey, we see in Genesis 1.26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over all the creeping things that creeps on the earth. All of humanity carries the Imago Dei. And as such, all of humanity is due a certain level of respect. Now, we tend not to like that, especially when, when we refer, talk about people that we don't agree with. In particular, politics and politicians. We have no problem running those people into the ground. But let me remind you that those people also carry the image of God. And so they are afforded a certain level of respect. This is true in all of society, and it is doubly true of God's church. You see, society as a whole, as we know from Scripture, is completely and totally depraved. Aside from God supernaturally intervening in the life of a person, they are spiritually dead, unable to see the truths of God, understand His Word, and love people as they should. We, however, who have experienced redemption, though no different, our eyes have been opened, we've been given a new heart to understand the truths of the Word, we're indwelled by His Spirit. And all people, reader, all people are without any excuse for the rejection of God. Romans 1 tells us this. It is clear that believers have no excuse for behaving as unbelievers, especially with regard to the treatment of fellow image bearers. 
So how does the church relate to people? This is what we want to take a look at this evening. Where does favoritism and partiality fit in the church? So in order to do this, in order to accomplish this task, we're going to be looking at the book of James chapter 2. Save your Bibles, make your way to the book of James chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at James 2 verses 1 through 13 this evening. James 2 verses 1 through 13. My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in bright clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one wearing the bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, did not God choose the poor of the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you, and those they themselves drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin by being convicted by the law as transgressors. But whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you will become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, we want to see this evening, James does a very good job breaking out this topic. And so, the first thing we want to note is the sin of favoritism. We see this in the first four verses of James's passage here. Okay, the sin of favoritism. The first thing he lists in verse 1 is the sin. He says, My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. James begins this section by laying out a prohibition about what is and is not to happen inside of God's church. He says, my brothers. This is James's audience here. If you remember from James 1, verse 1, he is writing to a group of Jewish converts who have been dispersed because persecution has begun. James is addressing his brothers in Christ, and he appeals to that relationship in order to give them an admonition about what is and is not going to take place, about how they should and shouldn't act. He tells his brothers, do not mix your faith with favoritism. He says there exists an incompatibility between favoritism and faith. And to back this up, James refers to the glorious Lord Jesus, who himself showed no partiality. We know this from, for example, Matthew twenty-two sixteen tells us, And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God and truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Matthew here recalling for us that Jesus is not a respecter of persons. He didn't give special favor to a person because they were rich or powerful. He's the God-man who chose to be born in the humblest of circumstances. Born in a stable, not in a palace. From a little town. He chose to grow up in a tradesman's home. To be from a despised area of Judea. The city of Nazareth in Galilee. Whose reputation had some people asking, can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus didn't care for status. He went to places the Jewish people hated. He talked to the dregs of society, tax collectors, Samaritans, women. He saw all people, though, as sinful and in need of saving. He himself stated that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And now he has ascended and sits in heaven in glory, waiting for the appointed time to return to receive his church. James here says, do not hold that faith in that glorious Lord with an attitude of personal favoritism. 
It is inconsistent with who Jesus was. Now the Greek is very interesting here. When he says do not hold, it's interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, this expression in the Greek is in the present tense. Carries with it the idea that James is calling for an end to a practice that is currently underway in that church. Second, the Greek here is an active in voice. This is a command to his readers to not just stop doing something once, but to continue, to actively continue to not show favoritism. They needed to continue to not do this. We need to continue not to do this. We need to continue not hold what? Well, he says personal favoritism. This is a very unique word in the Greek. Prosopolipsis is what I practiced before I got up here. It's a very unique Greek word because it only appears one time. One time in the whole Bible, this word appears here in James 1. Now, there is a noun form of it found elsewhere. But what's particularly interesting is that this word does not appear in any secular literature. It appears as though James invented the word. It means to literally the receiving of the face or a lifting up of someone's face, usually by the judging of someone's appearance. This word, again, only appears here in James 2.1 and has led some people to argue that James made up the word. The argument here goes that Roman society was so used to showing favoritism based on people's appearance that it would have been unconceivable that they would think that there was an error with this practice. So there was no word for it. Now whether that is true or not, James's point is very clear. There is to be no favoritism or partiality in God's church. It is grossly inconsistent with who the Lord is. It is grossly inconsistent with the impartiality our God shows. So he gives his command, do not hold personal favoritism. Continue to not do so. And he levels his command. Next he gives an illustration Verses 2 through 3, he says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in bright clothes, and there comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing bright clothes, and you say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit at my footstool. Like all good pastors, James, after giving a command, is now going to give an example of an illustration of what not to do. He gives an example of this behavior. He transitions by saying four. This is meant to be a big flashing sign. He's showing a behavior that is considered outside the bounds of the command with which he's just given. He says, here you are. You're in church. You're in your assembly is how it's rendered. It's the Greek term for synagogue. This just means the meeting, the assembly of believers. You're in your service, and two people come in. One is described as a, as a person in wearing fine clothes, gold rings upon his fingers. The Greek here actually describes a person of obvious and clear wealth. The gold ring in the Greek refers to a man who's actually wearing multiple rings. The translation of this is literally gold-fingered. One commentator explaining, in Roman society, the wealthy wore rings on their left hand in profusion. A sign of wealth, rings were worn with great ostentation. There were even shops in Rome where rings could be rented for special occasions. This was a very common thing among the very wealthy in Roman society. It was this practice that actually had the early church father, Clement of Alexandria, state that Christian men should only wear one ring, and that is the ring that is needed to seal documents. But this gold-fingered, very wealthy man also wore bright clothes, literally bright and shiny. They would have been typical of the Roman or Jewish elite or aristocrat. There was nothing bigger about this guy than his wallet. He was a big deal, but his wallet and bank account were bigger. But he's not the only visitor at this particular church service. Another man comes in. A man 
described as in dirty clothes. This man had no gold to flaunt. He would have, by the description of his clothes, he would have been a beggar or someone from the slave class, someone of low status. The only thing worse than, than this man's clothes would have been the smell about him. So the scene is set, James says. You're in church, two visitors come in. One obviously wealthy, one very much not so. What are you going to do? Well, verse 3 tells us. First, he tells us exactly what this hypothetical church does. He says, you pay special attention to the one wearing bright clothes and saying, you sit here in a good place and you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit at my footstool. The church responded by showing extreme favor to the rich man. The verb here in the Greek, to pay special attention, carries the idea with to look upon with great favor. This man was shown great favor. He was taken to the best seat in the building. The idea is they were falling all over themselves, attempting to meet this man's every need. The best seat? Sure. Can I take your coat? Absolutely. Need a drink? Right away. He was shown a place of high honor. The poor man, though, the story is much different. The poor man, having no visible great means about him, is shown no honor. He's taken to no great seat. He's told to sit on the floor by the speaker's feet or to go stand in the corner. He wasn't even offered the footstool of the speaker. No, sit down by my feet. This idea of seating of honor, we've seen this before in Scripture. For example, Luke 14, we see, when you were, Jesus says, when you were invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not recline at the best place of honor, lest someone, might, lest someone more highly regarded than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to say to you, give this place to this man, and then in shame you will proceed and occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you to come, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will have honor in the sight of all who recline at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. The place of honor was extremely sought in this day and age. In Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees, that was one of them, that they sought the places of honor. James says, you've given it to this rich man. Now, this must have been a very familiar scenario for James to have brought up. This was a direct rebuke to the behavior happening of this church. So he shows this example. Hey, you've got the poor man, you've got the rich man, and you've shown honor to the rich man. And so then he asks an important question in verse 4. He says, Have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 4 highlights the need for the reader to examine their conscience. With both visitors, partiality was clearly on display. In both cases, in one was shown extreme favor, in others extreme dishonor. And both of which are labeled as outright sin. James says this making distinctions between people, separating to different classes the people of God, this is absolute sin. The same God who makes no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, this church had the audacity to separate people, had the absolute gall to take the people of the impartial God and show partiality and separate them and fragment them and clearly apply value to one over the other. These are the actions of the double-minded, James refers to in 1.8. Someone who's not sure whether or not they're really going to follow God or the ways of the world. They had become judges with wicked motives. They had become unjust judges on the basis of externals. This is categorically wicked behavior. In his commentary on the New Testament, Warren Wiersbe says this, 
When visitors come into our churches, we tend to judge them on what we see outwardly rather than what they are inwardly. Dress, color of skin, fashion, and other superficial things carry more weight than the fruit of the Spirit that may be manifest in their lives. We cater to the rich because we hope to get something from them and to avoid the poor because they embarrass us. Jesus did not do this, and he cannot approve it. Another commentator stating how old the pew game is. It is absolute sin. It is evil, James says. And this is because of the extreme inconsistency found in favoritism. Seeing the sin and the example... James wants to point out the inconsistency found in favoritism. He says in verses 5 through 7, Listen, my beloved brothers, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and they themselves drag you into court? Did they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? We see here, Firstly, that God's choice, His choice and care for the poor. In contrast to the behavior of this church, James tells us that God has chosen to show favor to the poor. Now, what I mean by that is not show favoritism or partiality toward them. He has a special care for the poor. For the very reason that James explains when he refers to the rich exploiting Dragging to court. We see from this verse that the church chose to honor the rich man while ignoring the poor man, and that is inconsistent with the reality of the concern God shows for the poor. Now, the poor are not, again, more favored because they are poor. God does not withhold favor from the rich. But the reality of the fact is that God shows a special care and concern for the poor because they are so maligned and attacked by the rich. That the systems set up in the Old Testament law to show provision to them were being ignored and they were being exploited by the rich. And the majority of the church at this time was made up of people of lower parts of society. God has and does call some who are rich to faith. Just as He has not called some who are poor to the faith. It's got nothing to do with who we are economically. We know that there were wealthy people in the early church. Lydia, for example, owned the dyeing factory who made the purple fabrics. Joseph of Arimathea was wealthy enough to own a private grave. Cornelius the Gentile who went to Peter to inquire about faith was listed as extremely generous. The Ethiopian eunuch was the treasurer in the court of Ethiopia. Very wealthy. What I'm trying to express is that God acts with a special kindness toward the poor economically because they are often the targets of exploitation. The rich often ignore the cries for help, so God himself shows great care. But the bar is not lowered for them, nor is the bar raised for the rich. Salvation is not based on economic status. It is based solely and entirely on the grace of God and His sovereign good choice. We cannot earn salvation in any way. One commentator stated this way, God also ignores social differences. Masters, slaves, rich and poor are alike to Him. James teaches us that the grace of God makes the rich man poor because he cannot depend on his wealth. And it makes the poor man rich because he inherits the riches of the grace in Christ. All through the Old Testament law, we see God protecting the poor class. Leviticus 1, we're not going to read these for time's sake. Leviticus 1, 5, 10, and 14. We see God allowing the poor to offer cheaper animals as a, as a sacrifice. If they could not afford a bull, goat, or sheep, they could, use, they could buy birds. Deuteronomy 15, 1 and 2, we see that every seven years, debts were to be forgiven. Leviticus 25, 8 through 13, every 15 years, slaves were to be set free because of the celebration of the year of Jubilee. 
Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, when farmers of Israel harvested their field, they were to leave certain sections unharvested so that the poor were able to go and get food. Leviticus 25, 35 through 17, a person in serious financial need was exempted from paying interest on their loans. All of these commands, though, Israel ignored and took advantage of the needy. God wanted to safeguard the poor from the ambitions of the rich. James tells us that the poor are to be heirs in the kingdom along with all those who love God and are called by Him. This expression speaks of God's name being called over the individual as their owner. Literally spoken over them like a landowner would go to their field and speak their name over their land. These people may be poor now, worthless in the eyes of the world, but they are set to inherit the greatest kingdom that there will ever be. And there will be no second-class citizens in heaven. We will all be equal in value. John 14, verses 1-3, through Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwellings, places. If they were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. We are all set to inherit a place in God's kingdom. If, in fact, you have been redeemed. The problem, though, is while God has chosen the poor man to be an inheritor with those who love him, some in the church have dishonored this poor man. They've shown great contempt to him and said glorifying the rich man. And overall, in a general sense, the rich at this time are somewhat no different than now. They have no regard for God or Jesus. They blaspheme, is what James says. Verses 6 and 7, Is it not the rich who oppress you? And they themselves drag into a court. Do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? The rich, James speaks about, are blasphemous to the name of Jesus. The rich, James tells us, through a series of questions, oppress the church, drag its members into court, exploit them, take what they want, because the courts themselves are corrupt. James says they profane the name of God. Yet here this church is falling over themselves to serve this rich man in what? Of of hope of making an influential convert? How often have you guys heard that? If only this person could be saved, boy, the church would get a good look then. Wouldn't they be a great spokesperson? They have so much money and influence. That's the wrong thing to think about. God will handle His church just fine. He doesn't need a celebrity convert. James says they are exploiting you. They drag you into court. They take what they want. Why are you showing favoritism to this person? The context of this is that both these people are likely unbelievers. This rich person, based on what James has said here, was a very unlikely prospective member of this church. The church should have known this. They were primarily filled with the poor. One commentator stating, they should have known that of the two visitors, the poor man was the most likely prospect of a convert. Their actions could only lead this poor man, though, to conclude that the Christians were no different than non-Christians, and their Christianity was not for him. The testimony by this church showed that Christianity was exclusive to the rich. So there's an inconsistency here. So we see the sin, we see the illustration, we see the inconsistency. Next we see the law which is broken by favoritism, verses 8 through 11. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, being convicted by the law as transgressors. But whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but murder, you will become a transgressor of the law. First, we see James here explaining how God's law works. Verses 8 and 9 tell us this. James moves to discuss the law and how it is broken by favoritism. 
tells his readers that if they are keeping the royal law, then they do well. They're doing a good thing. This idea of the royal law carries with it the notion of both being from the king, that is Jesus, but also because the command that James quotes here to love your neighbor as yourself, it is the highest law that has been given that regards to all other laws that govern human interaction. We see in Matthew 22, 37 and 40, Jesus says, said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Jesus said you could sum up the whole law in two things. Love God and love people. An examination of all the myriads of laws there are in the Old Testament can be summed up in those two statements. If you love God and you love people, then you will keep the law. He's, of course, quoting Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance. You shall not keep your anger against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Romans 13.8 says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. James's point is clear here. He says, if you are obeying this command to love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. You are doing a good job. You are fulfilling the law. However, if you are not, if you are showing partiality to people, then you are a transgressor of the law. Romans 13.10 says, Love does not work evil against a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. To love one another is a mark of genuine faith. 1 John 4.7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and anyone who loves has been born from God knows God. Verse 9 explains very clearly that if we do not love like this, if we insist on personal preference over love, we are sinning. It is sin. In contrast to the command he is, that he gave, James tells us that if we neglect to obey the royal law, we, have tra- we are transgressor of the whole law. Now the Greek here carries with it the idea of this being a habitual thing, a continuing action. A person is marked by this behavior or a church that is marked by this behavior. And this could be very well evidence of an unconverted nature of those in the church. They have missed the mark of how God has ordered His church to behave and they stand condemned as sinners, as transgressors. We see in verses 10 and 11 that God's law is breached by favoritism. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of it all. For he says, do not commit adultery. also said, do not murder. For if you do not commit adultery but murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James expresses the truth that God's law is not often what we think it is. A lot of people tend to think of God's law as sort of a balancing act, sort of a scale. And if the side of the scale that holds all the laws that we keep weighs more than the side of the laws that we break, we're okay. That's not how God's law works, though. God's law is not to be divided up. It's like a goal line, an out-of-bounds line. All of God's laws work together to form one law. In football, it doesn't matter where a person steps out of bounds. Once it's done, the play stops. It doesn't matter if it was the 5-yard line or the 40th-yard line. Game stops. The boundary has been crossed. James makes it clear in his example of adultery and murder. He says, the same God who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. What are you, what are you going to say to God? Well, I mean, I, yeah, I didn't commit adultery, but I, I mean, I killed the guy, but I didn't commit adultery. It's not how that works. MacArthur in his commentary explains it this way. God's law is unified. It all hangs together and is inseparable. It is like hitting a window with a hammer. You may hit it only once and rather lightly, but the whole window is shattered. 
In the same way, some sins are relatively light and some are extremely vile. But breaking even one of these least of these commandments shatters the unity of God's holy law and turns the guilty person into a transgressor. Once the line of God's law is crossed, that's it. It's over. You're a transgressor of the law. You are guilty before a holy God. There is no good enough. When commentators stating, all recognizing that there are laws involved, varied injunctions, the singular designation denotes the unity of its nature. The varied laws unite to form the whole, expressing the will of the lawgiver. When we understand how God's law connects, we will see how being partial with people is not just an insignificant matter. It is a violation of the entirety of God's law and thus condemns that person as a transgressor of God's law. Thus, it makes them guilty before a holy God. Thus, it makes them worthy of an eternal punishment. It doesn't matter if it's murder or violating the speed limit. It is a transgression of the law. Thus, we stand condemned. And say, how can the speed limit be? Well, it's a civil law. God says, obey the civil laws. Then you're going to get lectured on speed limits tonight. Do not be so foolish as to think it's just a little sin. It's a little white lie. It doesn't matter. It does. There are no little sins. There are only sins. And one, even done once, is enough to condemn a man to an eternity in hell. Lastly, we want to look at tonight the appeal to avoid favoritism. Verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For the judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James states his appeal in verse 12, so speak and so act as the one who will be judged by the law of freedom. James pivots now to appeal to his readers. And in the Greek, this is an imperative. He's giving a command. He's not suggesting that you behave a certain way. He's telling you to. The Greek verb here to speak and to act are also present tense, active voice verbs, which means they are to be a continuing pattern of our lives. We are to talk and walk like a Christian. If we say that we're a Christian, we're to live and to speak like our faith is real. The law of freedom speaks to the gospel. This is not the Mosaic law. James is distinguishing between the law which leads to freedom from the law of Moses which has no freedom but bondage. The law of freedom refers both back to the royal law that he has given but also to the law which is completed in Jesus Christ's full obedience to the law. It is the heart of the gospel. He says, speak and act like your faith is real. Do not live like the world. Do not behave like them. Why? Because verse 13, For judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. As his command, this is a command to believers. James is addressing believers in this. So as believers, we should... We, do not have fear of judgment like the great white throne judgment that awaits unbelievers. So for the believers, this speaks of the Bama seat judgment of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now the purpose of this judgment is not to judge whether or not we belong to the household of the faith, but is meant for believers to give an account of their works to Jesus and to receive reward. Yet for the person who shows no mercy, this can be a very solemn experience. 
So much so that a person actually might not find themselves here, but instead at the great white throne. Because the person who habitually shows no mercy is evidence of a person who has never received mercy. For a person who understands what it means to receive the mercy of God, there is no other reaction that we can have to people than to be merciful with them. Mercy is a clear mark of the regenerate person. We understand what it means because we understand what our condition it was before Christ. Where we stood, condemned before Him. Some people think, well, little laws God can overlook. No. Not at all. One sin, one time, and that's it. God's law is so multifaceted because He is so multifaceted that we can't even comprehend all the ways that we break God's law. That's why we need Jesus. I stated in a previous message that James is a book of tests that a person can run in their life to see if their faith is real or imagined. Tonight we've seen the test of impartiality. And we may think that because we have not given preferences to a rich person over a poor person, that verses like this may not apply to us. However, favoritism shows itself in many different ways. We've talked about some of them. Fashion, cars, clothes. My first Sunday here at Lakeside, the very first service I ever attended, I was a senior in high school, never attended a Christian church before. Came in, sat in the pew that was along that back wall over there. Service started. I didn't know what to expect. And not 30 seconds into the service starting, I was approached by a man who told me, take off your hat or get out. I don't know why I came back. This person didn't know me. They didn't know my spiritual condition. They didn't know that I was there to worship. They saw I was wearing a hat and therefore I was unfit to worship in God's house. For the believer here tonight, are you guilty of showing favoritism? Well, how does that show itself? Well, let me ask you some questions. Do you only contact and interact with an extremely select group of people? Do you stick exclusively to your tribe, your squad, your clique? Do you reach out to new people? Do you even notice when there are visitors in the church? Do you introduce yourself to them if you do notice? Or do you awkwardly stare at the ground for Joel to start singing? Do you avoid people in the church because they're not cool enough to talk with you? Because they may be a little different than you. Because they have a job you think is a little demeaning and so you're a little bit above them. And so I don't want to talk to them. They're, they're a little bit beneath me. The thought of interacting with someone because their life may be a little different. Than, and by that, I mean, for example, a little louder than yours. Maybe they've got too many kids. And their kids are loud. We don't want to spend any time with them. My kids are listening. Sorry, I want to spend time with you. I love you. Do you actively avoid people in the church because of something about them? They're a little more awkward. These are all marks of favoritism. We are one body in Christ. Now, I'm not saying we need to be best friends with everyone. I do expect an invitation to everyone's birthday party now. But we should be loving and kind toward one another. Open to interacting with anyone. Not avoiding other people. Not purposely leaving people out because, I don't know, they're a little weird. Guess what? Everyone's a little weird. For the unbeliever here though, You are incapable of loving the way God has intended. 
You are a transgressor of God's holy law. Guilty for even one infraction. There are no small sins. There is no separation in sins. Their mortal and venial sins aren't a thing. It's propaganda brought about by the Catholics. There is only sin. And as James has told us, one sin condemns us no matter what, no matter how small we may think it is. So if you are here and you are hearing me, and you know I do not know the Lord, know that you stand condemned before God and judgment awaits. Your only hope is to call upon the name of the Lord, to repent of your sin, to turn from it, to turn toward Him, to ask Him for forgiveness. To turn your gaze to Him and to never look away. To experience mercy rather than judgment. And you'll understand what He means when He says that mercy is greater than judgment. The believer in himself has always deserved God's judgment. Our conformity to the royal law is never perfect as it must be. But our merciful attitude and actions will count as evidence of the presence of Christ within us. You want to know if you are a believer? Do you show mercy to other people? Examine yourself. We all have room to grow in this. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are not a respecter of persons, that you show no preference to one group of people over another, that the Jew and the Greek can equally come to salvation to you, Lord. Thank you for your intervening in our lives, opening our eyes to the truths of your word, saving us from our sin, Lord. I pray for everyone here that we would take your warnings of being merciful and impartial seriously. That we would seek to honor you in our actions and speech that people would look at us and see that our speech and habits are different. That we would live a witness before everyone, Lord. I pray for anyone here who may be an unbeliever that you would arrest their heart and open their eyes to the truths of their condition before you and your great salvation. But I pray as we dismiss now that we would leave here with a greater appreciation for you than when we came. In your Son's name we pray. In your glorious Son's name we pray. Amen.